James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Uh, Let me pray for us before we look further at God's word together. Heavenly Father, may we not just be hearers of your word, but also doers. And we pray this for our flourishing and for your glory. Amen. Well, in the world of advertising, there is something that is called a call to action. Uh, It's that prompting that urges the reader or the viewer to take some form of action. Call now, right now, uh, in a website. Uh, the received wisdom is that every website should have a call to action, a response that it wants its users to make. Uh, it might be the, the click point which says download now or subscribe now. There's a definite response that you are being called to make rather than just absorbing the information. Well, if the Bible were a website, then the letter of James would be the call to action button for Christians. Because the emphasis of the whole letter is summed up very nicely in chapter 1, verse 22. It says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. As you know, my father was an Anglican minister and uh, I think it was a blinding stroke of brilliance and inspiration that... um, on the church notice board, which was near the front gates, on the back of the church notice board, uh, he had this verse of the Bible. So as people left, they would read it. Do not just be hearers of the word, but doers. That's a good challenge. So you see what it is. Uh, It's a call to action. It's something that we all need to hear. Because at no time in history have Christians had such access to the Bible and to biblical resources. Of course, all of us have our own copy of the Bible, Uh, probably multiple copies in our own language, in modern English, uh, even on our phones. No generation in history has had such privileged access to the Bible. But therein lies the danger. Uh, Access is not the same as application. And the question is, are we putting it into practice? Are we obeying it? Are we doing it? Are we living it out? And this is the challenge that the letter of James puts to us. As we're going to see, uh, James is a very practical letter. Uh, It feels quite different to Paul's letters. Uh, If you've read Paul's letters, I'm sure you're familiar with the the basic structure of them. Uh, In Paul's letters, the first half is usually doctrine, and then the second half turns to ethics. This is how we should live in light of the doctrine. 
So in Paul's letters, it's sort of belief and then behavior, but this is not the case in the letter of James. Basically, it's pure ethics. It's all instruction on behavior. You see, if you want a, an explanation of the gospel message, you're not going to find it in the letter of James. Uh, that's one reason why Martin Luther famously called James an epistle of straw, although in this instance, I think he was wrong. So, the letter of James is not how you come to faith, it's how you live out your faith. Uh, it's not how to become a Christian, it's how you should live as a Christian. So, who wrote it? Uh, the letter begins, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, here's a Bible trivia quiz for you. Um, how many Jameses can you think of in the New Testament? One. Well, I can actually up the number to at least three. Three. Uh, there are two Jameses amongst the twelve apostles, believe it or not, uh, which must have been confusing for them. Uh, J James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the brother of John. Uh, he was the one who was executed by Herod in Acts 12. But there is a third James who was, anyone know? The brother of Jesus, that's right. Uh, Galatians 1 verse 19, Paul refers to James, the Lord's brother. Uh, and not only was he Jesus' younger brother, uh, but initially he was also a skeptical brother. You look at John 7 verse 5, it says, um, not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. Uh, however, fast forward, Acts 15, and what do we find? There is James, the brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And here he is now writing a letter describing himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is no longer just his brother. He is the Lord Christ that he serves, the one who is equal with God. It's interesting to ask the question, uh, what happened to James, the brother of Jesus? What was his journey to faith? And we get this little bit of a, an insight, a little glimpse maybe in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7. It says this, where it's talking about the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Then he, that is Christ, the risen Christ, appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And presumably this was the turning point for James, the brother of Jesus. And therefore, you see, the fact that this letter is a, a practical call to action, and the fact that it's written by the Lord's brother is particularly telling, because, of course, James would have grown up with Jesus. Uh, he would have lived in the same home as Jesus, and he would have seen firsthand Jesus living out in perfect obedience the law of God, living out the gospel, living out his faith. And so he's saying, this is how we need to live. And so he writes this letter calling us to be like Jesus, to be action men or action women rather than just people of speech. So who's he writing to? That verse 1 continues. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings to the 12 tribes. Now then, uh, if this was posted today, it probably returned uh, by the sender, by the Australian Post, on the grounds that it was insufficiently addressed. Uh, who was he talking about? 
Well, actually, uh, this is one of seven what we call general letters in the New Testament. That is, they're not addressed to any particular congregation, but to the church at large. So James is a general letter. Uh, it's an open letter. Uh, the 12 tribes could be referred to uh, and could be referring to Jewish Christians uh, dispersed from Jerusalem by the persecution which broke out, which we read about in, uh, read about in Acts 8. And therefore, James would be talking to his former church members if it's referring to the Jewish Christians who've been dispersed. But he could also be talking to Gentile Christians, the 12 tribes in the sense of the true Israel, the true people of God, and the ones who are scattered as exiles throughout the world. Because we know, don't we, from Hebrews, as we saw recently, Christians are exiles, and we're exiled from our true homeland in the new creation. And so the question is, how should we live as exiles scattered throughout this world as we head for our true home? And that is what, Jesus is, uh, that is what James sorry, is going to tell us. So the first thing he says in this letter is this, in trials rejoice in God's purpose. He begins his letter with a healthy dose of realism. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's realism. Uh, life for God's people will involve all sorts of trials. I don't know if you're into those David Attenborough nature programs, but so one of them which he wrote about the animal kingdom was called The Trials of Life. And that would be a good title for a series about being a Christian in this world. The Trials of Life. And of course, they take many shapes and many sizes. Because we, of course, have all the difficulties common to life living in a fallen world. We have illness, we have bereavement, we have financial stresses, we have job losses. We have work pressures. We have relationship breakdown. But on top of that, as Christians, we also have the opposition we face for our faith. And I know that some of you here have stories even from this year of particular struggles in your life, the trials that you have been going through. And the thing about the trials of life is that they often come when we least expect them. Everything seems to be going well, and then out of the blue, they hit us. Maybe we're made redundant. Maybe we are suddenly afflicted with some illness. Maybe we have an accident. Maybe we get a phone call with some bad news. And we, don't, we just do not know, of course, what is round the corner. What is the Christian response when we face trials of many kinds? Verse 2 says, strangely and puzzlingly, consider it pure joy. That seems utterly bizarre. How can James be calling us to call trials and to view them as pure joy? It seems so utterly unrealistic and unnatural. He's not saying, just grit your teeth and bear it. He's actually saying, count it all joy. Now, what he's actually not saying is that we should be skipping around with joy when we get bad news, uh, as if we're some sort of masochist. 
But what he is saying is, and what we're going to see is, we can have joy in trials because of what we know as Christians in trials. And what do we know? Verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. As a Christian, when our faith is tested, it is tested when we undergo trials, hardship, uh, when we're put under pressure. Uh, testing is painful, but it has a purpose. It is ultimately for our good, for the good of our faith, because out of it our faith emerges stronger and purer. Uh, the word translated testing here is used in the Old Testament about a refiner's fire. Uh, Psalm 12, verse 6, uh, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined, that is tested, in a furnace. Now, a couple of uh, council cleanups ago where we were walking around our local streets, as we happen to do at that time of year, uh, just seeing what our neighbours are throwing out and seeing if we can find a nice place for them in our garage. And if you've seen our carports, you'll know that we're quite successful in that. And I came across this mound of very unimpressive-looking metal. Uh, it was some lead flashing off a roof. And it was about a meter, it all folded up, covered in dirt and uh, paint. And I thought, we are going to have fun with this. And so, we took it home. Uh, didn't pull any muscles in my back, fortunately. And got the boys, and we got it all together, and we put it in a pan and put it on the barbecue burner. And sure enough, uh, it melted. But on the top was this huge amount of gunge and scum and then, of course, came the magical moments where we get the spoon and we scrape it back. And underneath is this pure, radiant silver lead. And the boys all sort of let out this exclamation of, ooh, and ah, and how amazing. And there it is, the refiner's fire, the refining process. It is beautiful and it's exciting, especially if you're a kid and maybe even as an adult. When we put uh, whatever it be, gold or silver in a furnace, we're not trying to destroy it. We are refining it. We're getting rid of the muck, getting rid of the dross. And when it comes out of the furnace, it comes out purer. And so it is with our Christian faith. In the midst of the trials, it is refined. And when it emerges from the furnace of hardship, it is purer and stronger and more valuable. And when we hold on to that truth in hard times, it means that we can have a sense of joy in them because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Perseverance, of course, means endurance. Uh, it means fortitude. It means strength. And that is an essential quality of Christian character. It actually comes up uh, repeatedly in the New Testament. Hebrews 10, verse 36, you need to persevere. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1, let us run with perseverance. Revelation 13, verse 10, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. So you see what you need as Christians. We need this stronger faith which endures. And it only happens as we pass through the fire. 
A believer's faith and character emerges from an experience of hardship with a dimension and a quality that they would not otherwise have had. And of course, we see it throughout the history of the Bible. Abraham, uh, Joseph, David, and classically, Job. We see it in figures of church history. And we see it in people of our time. Not least, who we looked at in the kids' talk, that Joni Erickson Tada. I've got another quote from Joni. I'll read to you. This is what she says. And it fits in beautifully with what we see in James. God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zones. God is more interested in inward qualities than outward circumstances. Things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning up my thought life, and strengthening my character. There it is. Joni's got it. But she's only got it through an incredibly difficult time of testing in her life. So, as our faith is refined, we persevere, we are strengthened. And I've, we see it in Joni's life, and I've seen it in the lives of many of us here. And we have a quality and a depth to our faith, which then encourages us to keep going. Verse 4, it says this, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Do you want those things, those qualities, more than anything as a Christian? Do you want to keep moving along the road towards perfection? To being mature? To being ultimately like Christ? Lacking in nothing? If you go on one of the uh, book websites like Amazon, uh, there are countless books about how to become the uh, complete cook or the complete golfer or the complete guitar player. And that's what people want. They don't want to be just the okay cook, they want to be the complete cook who can do souffles as well as burgers. Do you want to be the complete Christian? Do you have a desire to be the Christian whose character is rounded and matured, who keeps going to the end? and who is everything that God wants you to be. Because if you do, fasten your seatbelts, because it will only happen as your faith is tested by trials. And without this, your faith will remain immature and weak and liable to fail. You see, this maturity, uh, this completeness, this is God's purpose for His children. But it doesn't come easily. It's not just an add water instant version. There's no overnight dramatic change. The road to Christian maturity is uphill and it's rocky, and that is the road upon which God will lead us. Now then, uh, I'm sure you come across it, but there is a distortion in Christianity which basically says, I have my agenda in life, I have my dreams in life for the good life and a better life now. And Jesus basically is there to help me achieve my goals and to fulfill my agenda. And these dreams then get reflected in their prayers, prayers for health and success and everything working out. And yet that is a distortion of the Christian message. And God has a very different agenda. God's agenda 
is not basically to fulfill our agenda for an easy life. His agenda is to make us into the man or the woman of faith that he's created us to be. And sooner or later, uh, these two agendas are going to collide. And they will collide when things go wrong in life. And when they do, and if we bought into this distortion, uh, we will respond as we talked about in the kids' talk, saying to God, how can you let this happen to me? And saying, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm not going to trust you any further. So we need to remember the message of James. Consider it joy when you face trials of various kinds. And of course, what we're seeing is it involves stepping back and viewing the trial through God's eyes. It is an opportunity for God to work in our lives. It's seeing the bigger picture. It's viewing our life situation from God's point of view. But here then is the question. How can we do that? How can we come to this perspective? Because it is hard, especially in the trials of life. And verse 5 tells us, Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. You see, to have this perspective amidst the heat of the trials of life requires us to have that heavenly perspective, and therefore we need God's wisdom. Uh, when you go to Google Earth and just put in your postcode, uh, you get, of course, a satellite view of where you live. And you look down on your situation from a perspective that you wouldn't otherwise have. And you see where your house fits into the bigger picture. That spookily, a few years ago, when I put my mum's postcode into Google Earth, I actually could see her getting out of the car, which would be especially spooky now that she's with the Lord. How can we zoom out and get God's perspective on the trials of life so that we actually count them in some way positive, that we can count them as joyful, seeing that God works in them? And it only comes through the wisdom that God can give. It only comes when God enables us to see things through the eyes of faith and through the wisdom that He alone can grant. And the question is, well, will God really give me the wisdom that I need? Verse 5 continues. Uh, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to Him. You see, God's character means we can be sure He will grant our request for wisdom. Uh, God isn't stingy. He gives generously because He is a generous God. And He wants us, of course, to mature spiritually. And so, therefore, when we ask for wisdom, He is going to give it to us. We can be sure of that. But here, then, is the next question. Have you ever asked Him for that wisdom? Have you asked God for that wisdom for yourself or for other Christians going through hard times? Often uh, we pray grown-up versions of kids' prayers, don't we? Uh, Lord, give me a good day. Uh, help me to get rid of this cold. Uh, give me some relief from this unrelenting hot weather. And yet, when did we last pray to God for wisdom to see our trials from His perspective? As James will say later in chapter 4, verse 2, uh, you do not have because you do not ask God. 
But finally, uh, having said all this, there is a condition. Verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Uh, Jesus himself taught the same about prayer. Matthew 21, verse 21. Uh, If you have faith and do not doubt. So what does this mean? Uh, Doubt, of course, is not referring to intellectual doubt, but rather divided commitments. Uh, The doubter is someone who is in two minds, who's got a foot in two camps. Uh, Verse 8, we'll go on to see, describes the doubter as a double-minded man. Uh, Literally, two-souled. This is somebody with a divided heart. Remember God's command in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord our God with all your heart. And the doubter is someone who is not loving God with all their heart. Now, the double-minded person is someone who is trying to serve two masters, as Jesus said. And yet a divided heart will not do. Such a person is spiritually unstable. Uh, verse 6 Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And then in verse 8, he is unstable in all that he does. Uh, They are blown all over the place when the winds of the hard trials come. And of course, ultimately, God will not be mocked. Uh, Such a person's prayers are not going to be answered. Uh, Verse 7 says this. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man. A husband, of course, would not put up with his wife too timing on him, nor would a wife put up with that from her husband. And God will not put up with us too timing on him. Living with a half-hearted heart, he wants all of us or he wants nothing. So here again, it's worth asking ourselves this question. Uh, do I have a divided heart? Am I a half-hearted Christian? And is that maybe why I am all over the place spiritually when things go wrong? Is that maybe why I feel my prayers are not going any further than the ceiling? Why are we half-hearted? What stops us going for it? Isn't it that we think that we can actually get the best of both worlds? I'll love God, but also love money, for example. We think we can have the best of both worlds. But God ultimately can't be mocked. And ultimately, to tread such a path is folly. So what then should we do? Well, if we see that we are half-hearted, of course, the Bible calls us to repent, to being wholehearted. In chapter 4, verse 8, James will say this, and we'll see this later in our series. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts. It is a heart problem, but ultimately, only God can help us with that problem. I don't know if you've ever tried to perform open-heart surgery on yourself, but it is quite tricky. We need to repent and commit ourselves to an undivided heart and to pray for God to do the operation in us. And that is the prayer that he will hear. And it's something that the psalmist prayed for. Psalm 86 verse 12 says this. 
I will praise you, O my Lord, my God, with all my heart. And yet see the resolve to be wholehearted. Because look at the verse before, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. You see what he's saying? Unite my heart. That's what we need to pray for. That's what we need to say, God, please do that work in my life. If the Lord was to have a soccer team, it would be called Heart United. Ho, ho. Because that is what he wants. People with hearts that are united in love for him. And such people who are united in their love for Christ then do pray in faith for God to give them wisdom in their hard times. And he does. And God then enables them to walk up the rocky road with joy as they grow in their maturity, as they deepen in their faith, and as they press on with endurance. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, help us to live out this passage of Scripture. Uh, give us that perspective in the midst of the trials and the crucibles of life to remember that you are working a good work in our heart and soul through it, maturing us to become more like Christ, uh, chipping away at the sin that mars us. Help us to seek that wisdom from you, to be able to view our hardships from your perspective and help us to not have a divided heart and not to be content with living with a divided heart and divided loyalties. Give us a passion for you which burns brighter every day and which becomes more wholehearted every day. Amen.